0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine.
1: Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's to and friends with some
0: revelations. Little on- known fact about my guest today. She grew up in a family that is theater royalty, but she has made an incredible, indelible mark of her own. Welcome Jenny Gersten to the podcast. A-OK. Hi everyone, my guest today is artistic director and producer on Broadway, Jenny Gersten. Some of the many shows she's been part of the producing team for on Broadway include Fool for Love, The Visit, Far From Heaven, The Elephant Man, Bridges of Madison County, Hair. Very recently, as producer of musical theater for New York City Center, she was uh, behind the glorious production of Parade. She is an executive producer for the musical Born for This. She serves as the line producer for Beetlejuice on Broadway and the national tour. And at present, she's the interim artistic director of the renowned theater festival, the Williamstown Theater festival. She was also involved in the Off Broadway production of Sweeney Todd. She works with an extraordinary organization called the Campfire Project, an arts program that primarily serves Syrian and Ukrainian refugees overseas. She was the executive director of Friends of the High Line and the associate producer of the public theater in New York City for many years. She also served as artistic director of the Naked Angels Theater Company. And at Sea, she's the creative producer for Virgin Voyages. I am so thrilled and honored to welcome my friend, Jenny Kirsten to the podcast. Honestly, I, I was literally like... Really trying to remember the first time I met you. And I cannot because I always feel like my adult life somehow has included your talent and beauty and grace and kindness and um, diplomacy. And uh I really want to share you with my listeners because your story is remarkable. Um, I just want to add, for those of you who don't know, that she's also the daughter of the legendary, legendary Bernie Gersten, who was one of the OGs at the Public Theater and then ran Lincoln Center for many, many years. And her glorious mom, Cora, uh, who was a dancer in her youth, uh, became the founder of the Joyce Theater. Uh, among a million other things that that both her parents have done, and Jenny, to kind of keep arts and culture alive and accessible in New York and worldwide. So that is a very long introduction. And now I really want to turn the mic over to you um, so that you can share your story, both origin and currently, about why and how the arts are just imprinted in your DNA and, and in your children's DNA and just all that you bring um to the world of the arts, hi, Jenny. Hi, Alana.
1: I'm so happy to be here. That introduction was crazy. Who is that person? I, I think you 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 named it, right? My incredible parents that's that's exactly the part, my origin. I mean, they are my father's no longer with us, of course, but my my amazing mom and my and growing up with my incredible dad and my sister, I mean, just you know we were very we were very um we were you know the arts were just part of our everyday lives and m- my mom and dad did extraordinary things they did all these building projects in new york city so it wasn't just the art making but it was the place making right. and i think having those two things in tandem was deeply impactful and seeing how artists administrators everyone that they worked with board members staff um how they respected and loved the people that they worked with and how they were in turn loved and respected so
0: Tell me a little bit about, you know, for those of us who grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, like I did, <laughs> um, with the most loving, extraordinary parents in the world who brought me to the theater, but they were not making it themselves or hosting Christmas parties with the the who's who of the American theater. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in a home where the most extraordinary creative talents on every aspect, right? In every aspect, the way you described the building to the art being made for the building. What are some early memories that you have of, of that kind of vibrant artistic household?
1: i would be totally honest. Yeah. I had the biggest crush on Raul Julia, like when I was five years old. That's what I remember. Like you gave me that prompt. I was like, I remember having a huge crush. Like Raul Julia was always hanging around. You know, all those public theater actors were around in those early days, those 70s the, the, from the 1970s, like the foundational days of the public uh, of the Shakespeare Festival, which is what they called it then. And uh, and it was like Sam Watterson and Raul Julia and, you know, John Ware. And um, I mean, just incredible people. But I just, all I remember <laughs> is that my first real love was <laughs> <Raul>.
0: <laughs> so, you're using your little known fact now. That's basically what you're going to do. <laughs> that's true, actually. That is a little known fact. <laughs> I have another one in my back pocket in case you need it. <laughs> but that's a really good one. My God, Raul, Julia. I mean, I just watched it. But, but a I a mean, I not I, 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 I don't mean
1: to be coy. To answer yeah. your question, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not as fancy as those people. Being around creative people is, as you know, like very inspiring and and very uh, alluring mostly, right? I mean, those creative people are, are the reason that we go into the business because it's so um, intoxicating in the good way. I suppose also maybe the bad way, but mostly in the good way.
0: But a lot of times people who kind of grow up in a family business, whatever it is, um, can sort of be overwhelmed by uh, the expectation of them by going into the family business. So was there a time where you sort of thought, oh, I'm going to go way in another direction? Or were you always interested in being a part of this industry somehow?
1: I knew it from a pretty early age. But when I was heading to college, my dad said, look, you know, your mom and I have really spoiled you. You know, we've raised you kind of in this exclusive environment, and we've made it look like it was fun. And, you know, I don't think he ever said glamorous, because I never, I don't think my dad felt it you know, like to put it in that kind of trope, but, um, but he used to say, oh, you know, we, we really, we really did sort of skew you in that regard. And I want you to remember, as you go to college, will you please think about all the that are out there from archaeology to zoology. And so I went to Oberlin College in Ohio and I got there and I thought, oh, I'll check out the theater department. And I spent about two days in the theater department and thought, "Uh uh-uh, I don't need to be here. And so I became an archaeology major. Wait, did you say archaeology? (laughs) I just went with the first one on the list. Um, It was slightly random. However, I had a real interest in art history and a real interest in anthropology and a real interest in geology. And all of those subjects uh, made up for an archaeology major at, at Oberlin, which did not have an archaeology department. But if I took classes in those three disciplines, I could end up being an archaeology major,
0: <laughs> but what an incredible kind of investigation into and so history. I yeah it's yeah perfect and mankind in every way and sort of um, okay and so you did that in school
1: and, and layers you, right like and sedimentary layers. sedimentary layers
0: yes and so, I love it I mean Beanie Feldstein talks about how being a sociology major was like the most important thing in terms of her preparation for a career as an actor, right? The ways in which these things feed us unknowingly. Um, When you said, just I want to circle back, when you said, like, I ran away from the theater department immediately, was there a part of you that uh, was thinking about being a performer? Did you do plays when you were a kid?
1: I did a little bit, and I was terrible. But I, I I, my cousin, I truly was. My cousin Alexandra ran, um, back when it was like not even a real practice in the industry, my, cu- my cousin ran uh, a program called New Writers at the West Side, at the West Side Arts Theater, which was a play reading program before anyone was really doing play readings. And one of the first play readings she did was a play by a guy named John O'Keefe and needed a kid actor in it. So I went and did that and Andre Gregory directed me in it. And it started a lifelong friendship with Andre Gregory. He and I are still friends to this day since I was 12 years old. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, and and he thought I was a great actor, but I'm here to tell you, Alana Levine, I was a terrible actor.
0: So when you got out of school, how did you begin your career in earnest?
1: I did some, um, during my, so in, in uh, I did most of the, museum work, like internships, during my college years, but um, during my January term. But in the summers, I would intern at at the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference. So I started doing that when I was 17, and I did three summers there, and that was pretty formative because Lloyd Richards was the artistic director. He was an extraordinary mentor to me. And, um, And then, of course, that's really where I began my artistic community was the actors and directors and playwrights. Who were part of participating in the conference that, those summers? So that was very formative for me, and I met an actor who I had a crush on, actually another crush. Um, which really reveals a lot today. And he was uh, he was leaving the, the playwrights conference, and he said, "Come follow, you know, come see me in these shows at EST Ensemble Studio Theater. I'm gonna do these plays with uh, Willie Riall and the Fifty Second Street Project." Got it. And so I, a couple weeks later, I went to EST and I saw this guy. In the plays, and this guy named Willie Rialli came out on stage and said, You know, I'm doing this thing with these kids in this neighborhood and these theater artists. It's a mentoring program. And he was very charismatic, but the program really blew me away. So I asked if I could be an intern there, and they essentially let me be, and they hired me. And after so my first job in the industry was at this grassroots mentoring organization. And from there, I just, uh, you know, I, I gained a lot of skills there, and it was really fun to see that organization grow because it was very early days and then grew a lot while I was in the five years I was there. And then from there I got my first producing job with Mike Ritchie at Williamstown Festival.
0: Okay. So that was sort of your, how your relationship with Williamstown began. Yeah. And when you look back at sort of your, I don't know, you're, you're kind of coming up under the, the kind of mentorship of someone like Michael, and then kind of thinking about like, how you are, you know, you're at the helm now. Are there things that you learned at that time from observing him or working with him that you're like, huh, I still carry that with me to this day? Like, I like that. I like how he did that.
1: It's a great question. I mean, Michael, um, you know, Michael and I had so much fun together. I think he is really important to me for how he approached the work to say, you know, make sure you're working with people you love and projects you believe in and listen to the director more than anything else. He really did teach me that, that the director, because, because he wasn't a director, he really relied on the relationships with directors to help create the programming of a, of a, of a theater. And I think, but mostly what he really, really taught me was to have fun. He had said, I, it was, I, I, that sounds so trivial, but it's not. Um, we loved working together and we had mm-hmm. so many laughs.
0: And then at some point, I don't know if it was right after, you know your timeline better than I, um, but you ended up at that the public. I came to Naked Angels. But, no, I came to make it Angels after Williamstown. And then the public. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that's probably... Where I got to know you best, I cannot believe you took on us crazies. <laughs> that was the first time you were an artistic director of a theater company, the boss lady. Um, what was that like for you?
1: You know, it's so interesting. I always wanted to be my dad. My dad started the public theater with didn't start it, but Joe started the public theater and my dad came in and my dad was associate producer for these incredible Im- unbelievable years at the New York Shakespeare Festival and i thought that's what i want to do i want to be the person behind the great person just helping like create you know create the the things making you know taking the yeses from that art, that leader and helping to materialize them and i don't need the i don't need to be out front and i don't need to be you know in in the public eye And when Michael Ritchie got a job running a theater in Los Angeles, when he was working at Williamstown, we'd worked together for nine years at that point. He turned to me and he said, you should take my place at Williamstown. And I was like, absolutely not. That's not who I am. I'm the person behind the person. I don't want to be out front. And he said, you could do it. You'd be great. And I said, no, no, no. And he said, try it. So I went up for the job because I loved Williamstown so much at that point. And um, I didn't get it. And so then... So then I left crestfallen because I had spent six months with the search committee and in my soul walking around and choose as a potential artistic director. And I suddenly really wanted to do it. So when Naked Angels called, I was thrilled to take on that responsibility. And to answer your question, I found it both incredible for the opportunity to say yes to artists and really engage in those conversations in a real way and incredibly lonely Because the amount of responsibility and the idea that you can't ever turn to someone and be like, is this the right thing to do? And I'm not sure how to move forward. Or that sense of loneliness was profound and very strengthening, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I really look back at those years of Naked Angels and I think, wow, I developed such strong muscles to to begin real resilience.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what was it like? Was it this insane homecoming in a way when you find yourself at the public theater, which is, I mean, the Mecca for, for so many artists who came to New York, that was the dream, like to be a part of that building because it's so much more than a theater. It is a community clubhouse of the greatest artists of all time. And there you are. And who, was Oscar the artistic director when you went? So exactly. how did that happen? <laughs> I was at a luncheon
1: for a founder, uh, I'm sorry, a foundation uh, 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 that gave money to Naked Angels. It was a small luncheon for for this tiny foundation that gave us money, but also, and gave scholarships. And it was their holiday luncheon, and Oscar was there because they gave money to the public. And I didn't know Oscar used to see, he had just gotten to the public a couple months before, and, at, and I, at the end of the luncheon, we were standing around the lobby, you know, saying our farewells. And I said, do you want to share a taxi downtown? Cold. I didn't know him. And he said, sure. And I got on the taxi with him and I basically talked at him for 15 minutes. I didn't let him get in a word edgewise. I just talked about myself and my journey. Uh-huh. and Basically what I've already shared with you. Yeah. And, um, and At the end, when we got to the public theater, because I was going down to Disprosa Street, I dropped him off at the public, and he looked for his wallet, and he didn't have it on him. So I had to follow. He had to send me a check. And I kept finding him at parties and sort of, like, you know, razzing him. And eventually, I convinced him to make a job for me at the public. And I was so thrilled because I got to, A, have my dad's title there, which was incredible. He let me be associate producer. And, B, I got to exactly what you said, Alana. I got to be back at the public in this life force of a building, of a cultural institution in New York City, but also the place of my childhood. Incredible. So it was so meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And also after those years of like real, um, you know, uh, really, you know, challenging work at Naked Angels to be able to be at the public and be of service. I mean, I, I didn't get that, the autonomy, the joy of autonomy of being an artistic director. But I was like, but I get to be in this building and be of service to my community that I love. I was so happy. And I loved working with Oscar, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, talk and we did, you...
1: as you mentioned, we did some great shows though, the, in those years.
0: Oh I mean, just God. incredible shows. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there, for, for the few people who may not understand what your job is, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, obviously you've had a lot of different titles, but all of them are about sort of what you said, which is supporting a director and and a playwright and an artistic vision for each production, which is led by someone else, production to production, and being of service to that, but also getting to make choices about what productions are going to happen in the institutions that you are, as you rose in in, in the hierarchy um, of an institution, you started to get to not just support, but be in service to all of us by choosing the thing that we're going to mm-hmm. see. So so how, how does one over time gain the confidence um, to trust their taste in a certain way? How did you evolve in that way from I'm um, being in support of others' taste to this is my taste? Mm, I, I
1: don't know that that's how I think of it. I know that there's like a neurological or something thing that happens in me when I'm talking to an artist about a potential project or even reading or seeing something or, I th- or even seeing a performer, you know, where you're just like, wow, that person is lighting like they're 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 doing something that's making me see it differently it's like waking me up it's lighting me up what breaking me open there's so many different ways that art can like affect you so but what is it ultimately it's basically just a form of listening to your heart right like that thing of like trust your god or listen to your heart that that kind of very everyday advice that we have to it's so easy it sounds cliche but it's it's so foundational, right? So I think it's just that.
0: So if it's, if that's your TED talk, right? Like if your TED talk is um, that art is love, right? That, that the piece, right? Speaks to your, every, every part of your body is excited by this conversation or piece of work. um is that something that you have always had or have you learned how to listen to yourself as you've matured?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when you're really young, there's so much noise. Yeah. Right? And, and I think you're, you're trying, also you're doing a lot of gaming and I, I think that's a way to explain it, right? Like, oh, if I do this, then I'll get this New York Times review or if I do this, I'll get this famous person or I'll get, I'll sell out the theater. I'll sell all the tickets. Right. I think you're always like, there's like a manipulation kind of strategy um, way. And I, I think you're right. I think there's something about the stillness over time
0: Mm -hmm. to just go like, no, hold on.
1: What, what feels right. That i maybe have developed.
0: Okay. So, I mean, you you shared really openly just moments ago that it sounds to me like not getting the artistic directorship of Williamstown the first time around was pretty painful for all sorts of reasons at the time. And obviously everything happens for a reason, quote unquote, and the journey is like so circuitous in a way, but you kept returning there, right? In these different... <laughs> it's different ways um so there was such a like pull to that particular theater that institution the history of that place that even with kind of some wounds from the past you were willing to throw your hat in the ring or be courted back um Mm -hmm. what has that been like um to after all of these other journeys. And also you do so much at the same time. You know, people don't understand a summer theater program is a year long job. And I I don't know that everyone realizes that just because the plays are there two or three months a year, the office is open and and work is happening all the time. But while you're doing that, you also are producing a lot of other things independent of the Williamstown Theater Festival. Um, Talk to me about going back. What is that like? going back someplace on your own terms and how has that been feeling as of late?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, it is a place, my first nine years there with Michael were so formative for me and also with a time when I really kind of grew up. Um, You know, I got married during that time. I had both of my children while I was working at the Williamstown Theater Festival that first time. So I had deep roots in that community. And I do think that that place is magical. And, and again, also informed by the wonderful time I had with everyone there, uh, when I was working with Michael. It, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful those, that, that time for me. However, I think going back has been equally fulfilling for different reasons to sort of try to put my own, um, you know, my own stamp on, on the place and to make new memories for other people that are just as joyful and, and Um, fruitful I think has been very powerful for me that would that sort of describes my second time my first time as artistic director my second time back now that I've been here a year as the interim artistic director I really came in to um, as a bridge really for what Williamstown has been because Mandy Greenfield who is my predecessor, who ran the festival the last uh, you know many years um, did such extraordinary work here with new work and um, and 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 strengthening Williamstown's sort of place in the in the in the larger American theater field to just be a, a home for new work and 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 new writers. So I think she's been incredible for that. But now we've been working on sort of how we redefine what a summer theater is because that's based in this sort of summer stock model that requires a lot of exploitation and free labor, which we of course cannot. Continue. So we've been looking at all of the equity issues, lowercase equity issues, and 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 inclusion, and and making sure that there weren't barriers for for people to participate, um, and not just expanding what what a summer theater looks like. So that definition or that container is the thing I've been really interested in, in the past year. So we're still working on that.
0: Right. So you know, I I mentioned earlier that you, the last time I saw you was at the gala opening of Parade, um, which was at City Center, and it really was one of these moments in the theater that, that everyone was buzzing about, and those lucky enough to see it felt so privileged, and there was this uncertainty if that would be its only moment in New York or if maybe you know there was so much buzz about it going forward is that something you can talk about is i mean i don't think it's a secret that there's a want for it to happen is that
1: i mean i think i think that's, I think that's exactly on?
0: right yeah, i uh i mean i
1: can't you know i what what can i say i think it was a thrilling i mean it was it is one of the great memories of my lifetime as parade i i had such, i thought it was absolutely incredible to be part of it Mm -hmm. And that Michael Arden, the director, did just a beautiful job, and that that score by Jason Robert Brown is breathtaking, and Michaela Diamond were just exquisite. So I did feel, Alana, that that piece is asking for more life. Yeah. And it's actually not even asking. It's kind of demanding it. Yeah. So I suspect that that, its call for that will be answered, but I don't have anything official to tell you today. Okay.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, When you, you know, when I mentioned that you were a producer on Beetlejuice, that was another, like when Beetlejuice put up its closing notice, fans were outraged. The internet moves news around so much and so quickly, it's it's mind-blowing, right? So when you're at the center of sort of a show that is having that kind of like moment both both the joy of it the 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 sadness the unbelievable sadness and then it comes back like it's such a crazy amazing story can you take me through a little bit what it's like to be inside the heart of something like that
1: i have to tell you that beetlejuice is like i think you and i should like get off this podcast in a few minutes and start talking about doing another podcast series that just details the incredible story of Beetlejuice. Okay. It is singular. It is honestly a case study
0: okay. in how,
1: like, how because Broadway shows, generally speaking, behave very similarly in right. a lot of ways that I right. will not bore you with. But there's like sales trends, and there's like audience trends, and like, yes, of course, there's always a fan base of a for a specific show that like gets upset when a show is closing. But when Beetlejuice had the stop clause invoked, which is what happened, right? It wasn't that the producers chose to close Beetlejuice. The stop clause was invoked, which again, this is another chapter for another podcast. A
0: a real estate. It's a real estate question. That's exactly right. It's an our lease. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was was, an unexpected thing. And uh, again, I don't want to get too technical in, in the little bit of time we have, but, um, but it wasn't just that the fan, the fans were a huge part of Beetlejuice, but Beetlejuice, because it found a non-traditional Broadway audience of people who are primarily age 25 to 44 and who are primarily not women, which is extremely unusual in the space, uh, it did, it did follow, it didn't become its own thing. And also a lot of young people who are both male, you know, who are non-binary male and female, like identify all kinds of different ways. But, um, but, but it, the, sale, the, 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 the fan base is different than any other Broadway show. Well.
0: The, not
1: The, the audience, buy, the buyers, yes, not the fan base. Yes, fan yes, base yes, another.
0: yes. And anyway, so it must have been incredibly joyous to bring it back, right? To- yeah. To be able to deliver. And now there's a national tour that's going to happen. Yeah, Last last night in San Francisco. So there you have it. So what a happy ending. Definitely.
1: Welcome to a show about death that continues to keep having life. Yes.
0: Well, by the way, Broadway Podcast Network is always asking me to bring new show ideas. And if you're willing, if you're really willing to sort of do a mini series uh, on, The the genesis, the evolution, the birth, the death, the rebirth of a Broadway show, I think deconstructing it would actually be fascinating. Um, I think there's an audience for it, and it and it is something that I would love to deep dive with you. I know you have so much spare time. I think it's a really
1: good idea. It was a world premiere idea as as this interview is happening. And I think it's a very
0: good idea. I think it'll be fun. And I can already see the guest lineup. And I think it's one special guest star each week. So that's that's done. Um and it will coincide, of course, with us also talking about parade on Broadway. So that's gonna be awesome too when that <laughs> happens. Um, I wanna know is you uh as you, as I read on, Virgin Voyages is part of your resume. I just need to touch on that for a second because oh a, I wish I had the trademark for it. It's two great words next to each other. Can you just tell us what that means to be the creative producer of at sea? Yeah.
1: So Virgin Voyages is a a new um, corporation. In and they launched their cruise ship business. Well, they tried to launch in early March 2020. Guess how that went?
0: That's right. But, um,
1: but, be- <laughs> but before then, they came to me like in 2017 or 2018, as I was starting sort of my, the gig part of my career. And they said, Hey, we're entering the cruise ship space. We only enter, um, industries when we think that we can do something differently. And we're interested in creating experiences at sea that you can't find on land. And so we don't want to look like the other cruise ships we want to have. And they, they talked about sort of the profile of the experience on the ship from dining to the, to, you know, just, and I think the idea was to try to bring in a different audience than is the typical cruise ship audience. But what it meant for entertainment Was to create entertainment that you couldn't find really anywhere on land unless you went to like deepest darkest Bushwick or Edinburgh, right? Like they said, like can you can you make shows with people who are not yet famous, but will probably be famous in like seven or eight years? And can we put those shows and can we create a they asked for a creative collective of people who would inspire each other and create almost like a resident company on the ship of That's new work.
0: That's incredible.
1: That's incredible. It was such a cool proposition. And so yeah. I just was like, and they said, so just, we want you to make one show. And I was like, well, I could try to make a show for you, but what I'd rather do is be your creative producer, because if we are trying to commission new work, you are a corporation, you don't know how to commission new, new work. So I can kind of artistic direct the workshop process for you. And also, I'll be able to speak artist talk to you. And I'll speak corporate talk back to them, because they're not going to trust you. Right. It's not you're not going to trust each other. And I right. can help translate.
0: And is that so I was now- just
1: basically a midwife.
0: I mean, you asked
1: about what might what I do earlier. And it's, it's yes. that kind of one of the things I can do is like kind of midwife, right?
0: Yes. Yes. And is that now back on now that that sort of it's happening?
1: We made six new shows that were supposed to launch in 2020. We put them on a year later. They're on the first uh, ship, Scarlet Lady. We made some, a new one for Valiant Lady, their second ship, which is over in Europe. The third ship, Brilliant Lady, is launching very soon, I think. And that has even more new shows on it. The shows are amazing. The artists are incredible. I have had such a good time making shows for a cruise ship. It's unreal.
0: Okay. The idea that there's like a downtown experimental theater version for a cruise ship for people interested in really innovative new ideas like that is so, I had no idea about this. I'm so glad I asked. That's incredible. And we're going. <laughs> it's so much fun. I, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going in January. I cannot wait. Okay, and my well, friend
1: Sam Pinkleton, who's this amazing director and choreographer who made this wonderful show with Ani Taj. Um, he, we were talking about it last night and he's like, I can't wait to go back. Like we <laughs> we have such a good
0: time. It's so off brand and so fantastic. Um, tell me about <laughs> sort of as it is now December, 2022 You are the Interim Artistic Director of Williamstown Theater Festival. Uh, Their season starts in earnest in June?
1: Yeah, late June, early July. We'll start in 23, yeah. So
0: just talk me through a little bit before I let you go. Like at this stage in the game, like does one already know what plays they're doing this summer? Are you sort of ahead of what the announcements are for for those of us who read about what's happening. So what's happening now? What, What do you do at this time of year to prepare for the summer?
1: Well, we're in conversation with artists and also representatives, of course, about different projects for the summer. I had some already that I had in my mind for next summer. And I think really the conversations have been both about what the programming is also going to be, but really going back to this conversation about like, what is possible mm-hmm. because we really are trying to shift the organization and sometimes building the plane while flying it can be complicated. So I think we're trying to balance the, the challenges of, of reframing how the organization operates while doing things like having amazing conversations with writers and directors and, and actors about what shows they want to do this summer. So we're, we're in the middle of all the complicated conversations around that.
0: What is a little-known fact that you can share?
1: Very briefly, when I was in college and studying in Rome archaeology, I very nearly became the replacement for Winona Ryder in Godfather Three.
0: Okay. Okay, do you want to say anything more about it, or do you want to leave it there? <laughs>
1: I was very happy that Sophia was available.
0: That's incredible. Well, all right then. I I did not think that was going to be your little known fact. Um, it is boy, a very little known fact. I know, but it, as I look at you, it makes it makes tremendous sense to me. Jenny, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. What an honor to have you.
1: I'm so happy to spend time with you.
0: Little Known Fact. If you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa, with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.